communion meditation, please turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 54, and I'll read the first three verses. We've, this will be the fourth message uh, that I've given on this um, passage, and we'll be finishing this paragraph today. Isaiah 54, beginning at verse 1. Sing, O barren, you who have not borne, break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not labored with child, for more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married woman, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent and let them stretch out the curtains of your dwellings. Do not spare, lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes, for you shall expand to the right and to the left and your descendants will inherit the nations and make the desolate cities inhabited. Father, I pray that you would bless this, your communion meal, that you would bless this time as we uh, dig into your word and uh, that our hearts would be drawn to you in appreciation for all that you have promised for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let me give you a little bit of a review since it's been a while. In, uh, Verse 1, we saw that the growth of Christ's new covenant kingdom was anticipated to be as unexpected as a barren woman who was past menopause giving birth to a baby like Sarah did. As unexpected as that. Second, we saw that it was supernatural. The Apostle Paul applies this passage in the book of Galatians and says every aspect of our Christian life, every aspect of our Christian life needs to be wrought as uh, Rodney said earlier, rooted in Christ by the power of the Spirit. It must be supernatural. Third, God wants the church to be so convinced of this supernatural transformation that we, by faith, rejoice in it even while we're still barren, even before we see the promise happening. Fourth, God's promise is that true believers will eventually outnumber unbelievers in world history. Uh, it takes faith to believe that. <laughs> it takes faith to believe all of these things. Everything that faith call, uh, uh, really is uh, called to is audacious. Now, in verse 2, we saw that this faith takes actions even before we see the fulfillment of what has been promised. And the image that he uses is this barren woman who's been promised to see. She's still barren. But she's taking the actions of faith based on God's promise. She's stretching out the tent, adding to it, adding to it, saying, well, how many people are we going to be having in this tent? It's, it's the actions of faith that uh, is called to. And Hebrews 11 makes that a very, very distinguishing feature of faith. It gives example after example of people who took steps, actions of faith, that are consistent with the promises. They're acting on God's promises even before those promises are fulfilled. And we also saw that this calls for an atmosphere that welcomes growth and all of the potential problems that come with that. And that brings us up to verse 3, which promises that Christ will build his church so invincibly that it will grow in all directions so that at some point in history, your future descendants will inherit the nations and will rebuild all of the desolate cities, make them inhabited again. And again, this, this promise is so grand, it almost seems insane, unless we live by faith. Then it seems natural. If we're used to living by faith, it does seem natural, normal. 
So this verse is a promise of fantastic generational growth of the kingdom in New Testament era. And I think if you've looked at history over the last 2,000 years, you cannot deny that there has been phenomenal growth from a mustard seed, you know, 120 believers in the upper room, to multiplied millions in every nation all around uh, the world. But I should point out that not every segment of the church has grown. You look at world history, that's absolutely true. Not every segment of the world's church has grown. It's only those segments that have had, made the sacrifices of faith that verse 2 talks about and who have had the anticipation of faith that verse 1 talks about. Those are the only sections uh, of the world that have grown. But there are four anchor truths that I want to draw from verse 3. And the first is that kingdom growth requires individual, not just corporate faith. Now, even if Paul had not applied this passage in Galatians to individuals having to live by the power of the Spirit, we would still have assumed that the same was true, because what is corporate? The corporate is, you know, what's involved in the individual. So corporate faith is individual, a whole bunch of individual faces walking arm in arm. Um, it's... Um, uh, it's a call that every one of us needs to believe God's promises for the future, what we call eschatology. Second, God's covenant never neglects our children. And I love that phrase, and your descendants will inherit. Now that assumes that our children will be Christians, right? God's election, you study biblical theology, you see God's election usually works, normally works, through uh, our families, uh, through uh, generations. There's generational growth. And I think it's just a very um, biblical expectation that our children will normally be able to expand beyond what we have been able to do, generational growth. Now, again, it doesn't happen automatically. We've got to have faith that God will do this in our children. Now, assumes we're having children which is a big assumption in Christian circles today. As soon as we are having children, we're willing to educate and train them, disciple those children, and that we're willing to, 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 to transfer this infectious faith into their lives. And it assumes that you children are willing to embrace uh, the faith that these uh, verses have been talking about as well. But it's uh, not just uh, uh, generational... Uh, I mean, it's generational, not just individualistic. Third, faith is never surprised by desolation. It's never depressed when it sees desolation. It's never overcome by desolation or unbelief. Remember that in verse 1, uh, it showed that we came from barrenness and desolation ourselves. Verse 3 speaks of inheriting desolate cities, not perfect cities. I mean, what else are we going to expect outside of the church? We're going to expect desolation. Paul, in verse 1, said that apart from the Holy Spirit working in us, even we, as Christians, are a disaster in the making. So faith, what faith does is it looks to the kingdom of heaven to come into our lives more and more. Thy kingdom come. So it's, it's asking for God's kingdom to invade our lives, to tear down the old, to cleanse, and to rebuild. So don't get depressed when you look around you in America and you see desolation. You see a lot of unbelief. Uh, that's what we should expect humanism to look like. 
Uh, such desolation is no match for the supernatural power of Christ's kingdom. And then fourth, the church must be prepared to tear down everything that exalts itself against the knowledge of Christ and to build up a replacement civilization that is truly Christian, thoroughly Christian. The last phrase of verse 3 says, and make the desolate cities inhabited. So that's talking about rebuilding a new civilization on the ruins of humanistic failure. We must turn desolations around. Now that involves, we got to be involved, that implies we got to be involved in the cities. We can't escape from the cities if we're going to inherit the cities. Uh, there is a tendency nowadays to say, no, we've got to leave the corrupt. But God has called us to invade, to take over, to tear down, to rebuild. And so that in, in, in implies some involvement. And uh, we must have the answers to the problems plaguing our society. So that, in essence, is what verses 1 through 3 is teaching. And this morning, as you come to the Lord's table, I would encourage you to have a picture that is bigger than yourself, uh, a picture that's bigger than your own generation, uh, a determination to be a part of a multi-generational conquering conquest of Canaan. And when you're willing to embrace what we've looked at over the past four weeks in these verses, I think you're going to prepare to totally agree with the Apostle Paul when he commands us in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Your labors for your children are not in vain. Lord's Supper guarantees it. Isaiah 54, verse 3 guarantees it. Uh, your labors for the church are not in vain. Your labors for the city are not in vain. Sometimes it may seem like it, but he guarantees, no, it's not in vain. Your labors for our nation are not in vain. So I hope this verse gives you a little bit of an appreciation for the glory and the comprehensiveness of the new covenant kingdom of which this uh, meal is a seal. Let's thank the Lord. Father, we do thank you for your promises, which are astounding. And I pray that as we come to the Lord's table, which is your seal, your pledge, your promise of the new covenant promises, that we would be given new eyes to see what is possible, that we would individually and corporately step into the supernatural, step into that which is impossible in our own flesh, that we would be rooted in Christ, as uh, Rodney said earlier, and uh, we would find the kingdom of heaven nourishing every aspect of what we do. Do bless this uh, uh, table. Set aside these common elements to a holy use, and may you be glorified in our partaking. In Jesus' name, amen.